Life to me is a really great opportunity to find solutions, to be creative, to solve some of these pressing environmental challenges so that we can sustain just these amazing landscapes we have in Europe that we sometimes take for granted. Life is zweifelsohne eine enorme Erfolgsgeschichte und ich möchte wirklich allen von Herzen danken, die dazu beigetragen haben und mit ihrem Einsatz, ihrem persönlichen Einsatz, Life wirklich mit Leben erfüllt haben. With the EU Green Deal, Europe has embarked on a massive project of change. And life is there ahead of us, paving the way for the concrete implementation of the deal. Welcome to Roots in Nature, an episode of the Life is 30 podcast series brought to you by the Life Programme to celebrate its 30th anniversary. Three decades of preserving Europe's natural environment and developing innovative green technologies for a more sustainable future. During the Life is 30 series, we're featuring some of the Life projects and talking to some of the people who've made the Life programme such a success. In this episode, we're talking about the Life programme's roots in nature protection, particularly of habitats, safeguarding them, restoring them and enhancing them, and often all three at once. You'll remember from our episode Life Begins at 30 that we guided you through the establishment of the EU Habitats Directive, a cornerstone of EU nature law that protects more than a thousand animal and plant species, as well as 200 endangered habitat types. First, we're off to the seaside, to the Netherlands and the South Kennemerland National Park, west of Amsterdam, where their grey dunes are a priority habitat for the Life Programme. Fragile, but home to a bewildering array of biodiversity. And as this project shows, protecting nature and fighting climate change go hand in hand. I met up with Marika Kuipers, a coordinator of the Dutch Dune Revival Project, which ran for six years from 2010. So you've brought me down to what would be the high tide mark here on the beach. We've got um, some shell fragments under our feet. The, the sand is harder here. What's special about this particular zone of, of the dunes? Uh, well, now we are on the, on the side which I want to show you because here we made a very beautiful notch into the dunes. Um, and we made this notch because the, we have a, a connection with the beach and the dune area. So new sand can blow into the dunes and it can form new dunes. It's quite broad. It's about, we, we digged about 12 meters deep and about 100 to 50 meters on the top side and in a kind of a V form. It's funneled into a shape, right? Yes, it's, 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 it's funneling. The wind is funneling, so it's going faster. And the faster the wind is going, the more sand it can take. And it's a very beautiful landscape because you have all riches behind, behind, behind. And uh, that's a living landscape. Living landscape. That understanding is the key to managing dunes because they're always shifting and drifting. Or at least they should. Although cutting notches into the dunes made sense from a nature management perspective, it took a while to convince locals, some of whom feared it would weaken the sea defences in a country in which one-third of the land is below sea level. But the project considerably exceeded expectations. I want to, I want to tell that those lobs, we thought we, they would grow about three to five metres a year, but they grow ten times more. So it is very successful. It's successful for nature, but it's also successful for sea defence, because we need higher dunes when the sea level is rising. 
Uh, when we have a climate change and the sea level is rising, uh, we have a bigger dune system, it's higher. So it's, it's a very important system and we didn't know it was so successful. So it's a very good example for whole Holland and even in northwest of Europe. Also in UK, they say the Dutchies, they do it. Uh, can we do the same? We learn from this project. We all learn from this project. Much of this area used to be a private estate, and over many years, forests and exotic shrubs had been planted. And this is where restoration comes in, because if the work that Marika described was really going to have an effect, it was necessary to look at the habitat in its entirety and to tackle these invasive alien species of plants. Joachim van der Wecht is an information officer at the National Park and worked on the project. This valley we're looking at, it was all covered with black cherry. Black cherry is um, a non-European species and it was growing very fast. Uh, it was almost the only species growing here. So the biodiversity was very low. How did that black cherry get here in the first place? How do invasive species colonize natural areas like this? Well, often it's, it's by accident. People bring species all over the world, uh, sometimes they think it's a good idea to, to, to put a species in a new area. Uh, that was here the case. Um, people were planting pine trees and um, they put the black cherry, they uh, planted it under the trees to get them grow fast and straight. Like Jovien, Hans Vondegem also works for Natur Monumenten, a leading Dutch nature conservation organization with almost three quarters of a million members. One of the project's aims was to recreate the right conditions for the right kind of dune biodiversity to return. A living landscape physically and biologically. That meant removing scrub, trees and grassy vegetation, restoring the original habitat and its biodiversity. There, there are, of course, a lot of birds in the, in the dunes. Dragonflies, uh, grasshoppers all kinds of beetles, butterflies. They are a main objective for us because the butterflies, they have a relation with, with a, lot, a lot of plants which are uh, uh, specific for the dune grasslands, like the pansies, and they are uh, very important for us. And it's amazing, it's very nice to, to be in an area like this with so much biodiversity. And so, yeah, I'm a lucky guy. <laughs> Thanks to the Dutch Dune Revival team in the Netherlands for welcoming Life is 30 to their beautiful backyard. What a place to work. Now, let's turn to Humberto Delgado Rosa, Director for Biodiversity in the Directorate General for Environment of the European Commission. Europe's biodiversity continues to decline at an alarming rate, with most protected species and habitats lacking good conservation status. Life projects have supported some 750 species and 5,400 habitats through 1,800 projects worth 3 billion euros of EU co-financing. But it's not enough to counter the major drivers of biodiversity loss in Europe. The first cause of loss is land use change and sea use change. So whenever we modify the ecosystem as it was, we often do it in a way that simplifies things and reduces biodiversity. That's one. The second is 
over-exploitation of resources. We just consume too much and we do without much care. The third one is climate change per se, which is uh, there's a, a very direct link to biodiversity. The fourth is pollution of all, of all sorts. And the fifth is invasive and species. Well, that's biodiversity loss. So what about biodiversity growth and nature restoration? Conservation efforts from the LIFE programme have been successful throughout all habitat groups and all species types, but mostly at local and regional levels. The actions carried out under the LIFE programme have only managed to slow biodiversity loss rather than halt or reverse it. As LIFE turns 30, biodiversity is more important than ever in EU policymaking. The main novelty of the Green Deal is not climate, which has increased ambition and very well, but it treats biodiversity as a a fundamental uh, issue as climate change is, biodiversity loss. So if you look to the deliverables that have followed from the Green Deal, well, to begin with, the biodiversity strategy for 2030, which is honestly the most ambitious the world has ever seen. We want by 2030 to go further, 30% of land and sea protected, one third of which strictly protected. It was approved uh, together with the farm-to-fork strategy targeting the sustainable food system, some targets in common. And to complete this framework, the Commission just adopted a pioneering proposal for a nature restoration law, setting specific targets for the restoration of different ecosystems, from forests to the urban environment, not only those protected already by the habitats and birds directives. The aim is to cover at least 20% of the EU's land and sea areas by 2030 with nature restoration measures. And the Commission proposes reducing the use of chemical pesticides by 50% by 2030. We'll talk about that in another episode of our series, Food for Thought. So thank you for the moment to Humberto Delgado Rosa. We'll be back with him a little later. Now here's another landmark LIFE project on nature restoration. LIFE to Alvars, based in Estonia, focused on Alvar grasslands, which are boreal grasslands on lime-rich soils. One third of Europe's total Alvar grasslands are in Estonia. The areas are uh, semi-natural grasslands, which are traditionally grazed with low intensity by sheep and cattle. But if they are abandoned, they overgrow with junipers and pine trees. And the species richness of uh, plants is disappearing. So our uh, main effort was to clear the areas again and start restart the grazing in these areas. And we have done that on 2,500 hectares. That's Annalie Holm, project manager. We uh, had very good outcome from the botanical point of view. Uh, many, many species that were not um, found uh, on these sites anymore are now returning. There was a wild orchid species found that was thought to be extinct in Estonia. Uh, it has not been found for more than 100 years. And now it reappeared uh, on the restored site. As is so often the case with the most effective life projects, when the local community is aware and involved from the outset, the benefits can multiply. We involved 600 private landowners, 60 farmers and 20 entrepreneurs who helped with the restoration work and also with the building of the cattle and sheep fencing. So the uh, actual uh, benefit for the locals were very big. 
big uh, from the socio-economic point of view. Now, after the project is finished, these areas are continuously grazed by the farmers and they receive cap payments from doing that and they also raising um, meat from these areas. So locals were quite happy with this uh, project. Annalie Holm there from Life to Alvars, a winner of the Natura 2000 prize at the Life Awards 2022 held in May. Well done to them. Now, back to the policy perspective for a moment. Frank Vassen is a policy officer in the Nature Conservation Unit of DG Environment in the European Commission, and his career has given him a broad overview of the LIFE programme. I was a LIFE beneficiary for four and a half years for Belgian NGOs in the 90s. Even before that, in the late 80s, I was already involved as a volunteer. How has it shaped my work on the policy? Well, I think it's always useful to see a topic from different angles. Now uh, my work is more about compliance and legal enforcement and uh, promoting the implementation of a birds and habitats directive, less on the work on the ground. But still, you cannot understand uh, the, the challenges uh, member states are facing or stakeholders without knowing the, the realities on the ground. As already mentioned, the broader picture is that in Europe and throughout the rest of the world, biodiversity is in free fall. That's why keeping land for nature, such as through the protected areas of the Natura 2000 network, is more important than ever, as Frank describes. If you look at the level of intensification of lands outside the protected areas, we are increasingly in the situation where protected areas are the last let's say, biodiversity heavens in Europe. That's an unfortunate reality. So even if we have to acknowledge that uh, the protected areas will not be static in time, we need to dedicate some areas specifically to the conservation of biodiversity. I asked Frank for his perspective on the progress of the BIRDS Directive, a pillar of EU nature legislation that dates from 1979. If we look back... We have done a lot of progress in terms of the direct protection of species and that is also very much shown in the data. If you look at the species that were subject to direct persecution, raptors uh, for example, owls, all of them are doing much better now than they were doing 30 years ago. We also got rid of the problem of the pesticides killing the birds huh, to quite an extent. So all that, these issues have been solved, and I think this is also thanks to some extent to the BIRDS Directive, where it's habitat degradation, and in particular when we talk about grasslands, uh, ground breeding birds, etc., the situation unfortunately is still continuing to decline, and we haven't found the silver bullet so far. Frank Vassen there, discussing policy perspectives for habitat protection. And indeed, grasslands are precious habitats for several bird species, like the great bustard, one of the heaviest flying birds in the world. Let me introduce you now to Rainer Rabb, a biologist from Austria who's dedicated many years to saving this bird from extinction. Thanks to the LIFE programme, their population has grown fivefold. The main threats they were facing, habitat loss, and colliding with power lines. Burying these cables where possible and placing markers on suspended lines were core project activities. But the project worked in close cooperation with local farmers to leave fields fallow, the great bustard's habitat of choice. 
it's very important that the habitat is full of insects and that you can reach only with not intensive agricultural use. So we really have to make special bustard fallow where insects can produce themselves. Bustard has no chance in a normal cultivated area, no chance. Reiner's work brings into focus one of the rationales behind the LIFE programme as a pan-European instrument. Habitats don't stop at national borders, and indeed the opposite is often the case. Reiner focused on expanding Natura 2000 sites protected under the Habitats Directive across nearby borders. Uh, nowadays, most of the areas that are important for the bastards are Natura 2000, but that was not always the case. So that was also one achievement of the project that the Natura 2000 site was enlarged. But I think for the bastards, the most important issue is really to think cross-border, because especially in our region, we live on the border between Austria, Slovakia and Hungary. And without concepts for all three countries, it's impossible to protect the species because a lot of individuals are on the same day in Austria, in Hungary and Slovakia. Reiner is optimistic in general about the future of the Great Bustard. But with a sudden increase in the cost of food across Europe, the picture is perhaps not as rosy as it could be. So I think there is a good chance that the population will grow and grow. Yeah, if, if we give the birds a chance. The only risk that I see at the moment is the stupid war in, in the Ukraine. Now there's a high pressure on fellow land because farmers want to produce, again, a lot of food because there is also some need, to be honest. But on the other hand, I don't understand that there is so high pressure on the fellow. There is no need to destroy the last habitat for, for rare species. I put Reiner's concerns about the food crisis and restarting agricultural production on fallow land to Frank Vassen, and this was his response. Of course, this will certainly have some impacts on, on the abundance and the conservation status of certain species that have adapted to these uh, set-aside lands. Even if a decision has been taken to open the land to agricultural production, uh, where if that would have a negative impact on the Natura 2000 site, well, there is still the requirement to avoid any deterioration in the sites that should legally apply. So I think that with Natura 2000, we still have a safety net that, uh, if properly implemented, should at least avoid the worst deteriorations. Cross-border projects like Life Great Bustard in Central Europe underline the importance of increasing physical links between protected areas to reach the goals of 30% of EU land and 30% of EU seas under protection, as established by the EU Biodiversity Strategy for 2030, as Humberto Delgado-Rosa explains. Well, let me go back to the EU Biodiversity Strategy for 2030, because it also says that we should reach the stage of a real uh, trans-European network for nature. And that explicitly includes connectivity and ecological corridors between the protected areas, the channels for species and habitats to be able to migrate and be in, in, in contact. And one of the measures that came to my mind, for instance, is push for free-flowing rivers, restoring free-flowing rivers. That's a direct element of connectivity, for example. Thanks, Humberto. And that's a great way to move on to our next project in the United Kingdom. And it's worth reminding you here that the UK remains involved in life projects that began under the previous budget cycle. The River Severn is the longest in the UK, flowing from Mid Wales to the Bristol Channel. 
In the middle of the 19th century, weirs were installed on the river, all well and good for vessels navigating the Severn, but disastrous for the Twait Shad, a fish that lives in the sea but migrates far inland to spawn in rivers upstream. Twait Shad cannot jump like the salmon. They can't wriggle round damp margins like eels uh, or lamprey. They are strong swimmers, but they can't jump. That's Jason Leach from the Unlocking the Seven for Life project. Until the weirs were built, the Twait Shad used to swim upstream some 250 kilometres to spawn. The weirs cut that range by 90% until life came along. The primary reason we're, we're restoring the fish passage at those four sites. Um, these are very big weirs, so we're putting four very large fish ladders um, at four sites that are about 100 metres long, 8 metres wide, so they're very expensive. It allows migratory fish to get over these blockage that have been hampering them for years to get to better spawning ground. Um, so we now have got evidence of the fish passing through. Hopefully over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, their populations will recover. All life projects must have a communications component. And in addition to their outreach activities, Jason and his team provided the local community quite literally with a view into the now slightly less mysterious world of the Twait Shad. We've embarked on a huge programme of public engagement. You know, while we're doing all this work, while we're working on the river, is showcase the river, the fish, and the fascinating things that go on under the water surface. We've engaged over 3,000 school children. We've, we've currently, since opening um, sort of last summer, about 1,000 people into the viewing gallery which we've created at the Diglish Fist Pass to allow people to come down the side of the river and see this huge window with all the migratory fish and other coarse fish passing by. The effects of a life project can sometimes be immediate and can sometimes become apparent only after decades. One thing's for sure on the Severn, that the habitat, the length and breadth of the river's 350 kilometres can only be enriched by the long overdue restoration of the Twait Shad's migration. I asked Jason about what was so special to him about working on this project. People's reaction is just priceless. I think, you know, hopefully we're inspiring some environmentalists, some scientists of the future. You know, we all probably end up doing something we do because of something that happened when we were younger. You know, we read an amazing book. We went to an amazing place. Hopefully in 10 or 15 years time, there'll be somebody at university there because they saw some shad pass in the window in Worcester. Those are the things that are going to really excite me, actually. So it's been an amazing project to work on. Jason Leach there from Unlocking the Seven for Life. A final word now from Humberto Delgado Rosa director for biodiversity in DG Environment at the European Commission, to help sum up the added value of life for habitats. I had the privilege for some time to have life under my direct responsibility. And that's where I've understood that life has built a special soul. There is an engagement between those that coordinate life and the uh, project promoters in such a way that it not only ensures quality, but it ensures ownership and the sense that the EU is here to help. And the special way of managing life is, I think, its main asset. Thanks to you, Humberto, and to our other guests for their contributions to this podcast on life and habitats. Much to celebrate, but still also much to do, especially in addressing marine habitats, if those 2030 biodiversity strategy targets are to be met. 
Our next Life is 30 episode is all about how to save a species. We'll be looking at the pioneering work that Life has undertaken to save endangered species and we'll be featuring a couple of marine projects. So we look forward to your company for that, when once again we'll be showing you Life, it's what you make it. Dear listeners, thanks for tuning in to Life is 30, the podcast series celebrating 30 years of the LIFE programme, the EU's funding instrument for the environment and climate action. Life is 30 is brought to you by SENEA, the European Climate Infrastructure and Environment Executive Agency. Research and production by Margarita Sforza and Claire Taylor. Our thanks to all the members of the LIFE community. 